Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm here with my friend, Amy Bird. Uh, there's just the two of us of the usual team here today. Our friend Todd Pruitt is off uh, probably doing something horrible on social media and upsetting all of the wrong people. Well, I saw uh, so a it's a scary clown today, and I think... I think I intimidated him. You did send him a picture of a clown, and, and that is the one thing, of course, that Todd fears more than anything else. He is a coolrophobe, I think is the, <laughs> the technical term. Well, today's one of those podcasts where we have a special guest. Uh, this man would be English uh, if his ancestors had not been criminals and uh, expatriated to Australia. Uh, he's uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, his name is Tony Payne, uh, a writer and director at Matthias Media, and I'm sure that many of our listeners have benefited greatly from some of the excellent publications from Matthias Media over the years. Uh, he also works at Moore College, where he uh, runs the Center for Christian Living. Uh, if you're not familiar with Moore College, Moore College is uh, the preeminent Anglican training college in Sydney, Australia, and has done sterling work over the years in preserving Christian orthodoxy, both in Australia and providing great materials and great teachers for my own home country of England through its close links with Oak Hill Theological College. He's perhaps, Tony is perhaps most famous in America as the author of The Trellis and the Vine. But today we want to talk to him about another topic. We want to chat to him about something which he's actually been working on for a PhD, and that is the speech of the Christian community. Most of our listeners are probably very familiar with the idea of the centrality of the preached word. Uh, we are very familiar with the importance of the proclamation of God's word on a Sunday. But of course, the Christian community exists throughout the week as well, and Christians are constantly interacting with each other and with the world. And Tony's uh, theological interest is in how that speech, the speech that goes on between Christians outside of the formal worship service, uh, shapes and forms and impacts the Christian community and those with whom we come into contact. So, Tony, it is a great pleasure to have you on the program with us today. And it's a pleasure's all mine, Carl. Um, we know, you, we well, know. Well, yeah, you might like to know some Australians uh, did come to this country not just because they were criminals, uh, <laughs> but also because they were greedy, grasping gold diggers looking at coming to the gold rush. So we're, we're either criminals or we're uh, greedy capitalists. And one, one thing or another, that we're not very respectable. That's certainly do you, do you have a preference as to which your ancestors may have been on that front? Well, or, uh, well I'm not really. No, they're both bad. I think actually we, our ancestors were just immigrants who came out to, to, to get a piece of land from, from Ireland. Um, and from central England. So that's it is a It is a beautiful country. I've been there now, I think, three times. And I've been to Moore College twice. And, and it is a wonderful place to go. It's, to me, it's a kind of halfway between England and America. It's sort of English in its culture. Hmm. But it looks like America because everything's relatively new. Do you think that would be a relatively accurate uh, statement? Yeah, I think in, in my lifetime, certainly the influences that have 
uh, that have shaped Australia are largely British. We're largely a British culture, uh, but especially in the last 50 or 60 years, um, we've consumed a lot of American culture in, in Hollywood and tel through television. And so Australia has this funny mix of, of, of British and American culture. And that's true in the Christian culture as well. I've noticed in recent decades, um, the influence of British theologians and leading British thinkers has started to wane a little bit in Australia, and we've looked a little bit more to the US for uh, better or for worse. Interesting, interesting. Tell us about your project, Tony. We talked about this when I was in Moore College a couple of years ago, uh, and I was giving some lectures on the importance of the, the proclamation of the word, and we had a happy afternoon chatting about uh, different emphases. So run, run us through uh, your interest in... Uh, the speech of the Christian community in, in the more informal settings that, that we talked about? Sure. It came out in some ways of the trellis and the vine. Um, one of the things that we talked about quite lightly and breezed past pretty quickly in that book was that the word of God, which shapes the Christian communities and constitutes and founds and gathers the Christian church is not just a preached word, but also the, wor the word that is on the lips of every disciple. And we just sort of said that fairly briefly on the way through. And we got some interesting pushback, actually, from in some quarters, um, asking us to justify that position. Uh, and surely, if we give too much emphasis to the to the word ministry of every Christian, we might be in danger of perhaps even undercutting the pulpit. So I went off to do a little bit of thought, there must be something that someone has written on this topic um, and found very, very little. And, and so determined to do some research myself, in a sense, to ask the same questions about the one another word ministry of Christians that we would ask of preaching. That is, what is it really in relation to the, our theological understanding of God and of reality? What's its purpose? What's its nature? And what function does it perform um, within God's church? And that's what I started digging into and discovered, to my surprise, that there'd been very little work done on that in the history of, of Christian reflection, which, which given its um, frequency and kind of uh, prominence within the New Testament material, surprised me somewhat, I had to say. What do you think the reason for that is, Tony? Well, um, I, don't really, I didn't really get too much into the reasons in my research. I speculated, of course. But um, I think it's partly got to do with the emphasis on the preached word at the time of the Reformation, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But I think a failure of the Reformation culture in the Reformation and subsequent to that to think through what the priesthood of all believers might actually mean in terms of Christian ministry. It, it's very interesting. I mean, you're a Luther man. It's very interesting to trace this in Luther um, especially in some of his earlier writings, he made some very strong statements about the role of every believer as a preacher of the gospel, teaching and preaching the gospel like a priest does, because we're brothers with Christ and we, we partake of his priesthood. Um, but as time went on, and obviously as, as circumstances um, unfolded in Luther's own ministry and the, the troubles he had with the enthusiasts and, and with Karlstad and so on, his emphasis on that diminished and he, he wanted to say, yes, we're all potentially, we are all priests and we all have the commission to speak and preach the gospel. But in reality and in fact, we appoint a couple of people to do that on our behalf. Um, and that kind of move seemed to sort of carry on into Christian history and there just hasn't been an emphasis on it, on it at all. Yeah, I think uh, you know, 1525 and the Peasants' War and then 1535, 1536 uh, in yep. Munster. 
These are absolutely decisive events for shaping Protestant views of priesthood of all believers. You, you actually don't get much about the priesthood of all believers after about 1525. It mm-hmm. fades away there. Amy, do you have a comment or question at this point? Yeah, I'm, th- I'm kind of thinking on another end, too, just how, um, how individualistic our culture is now and, and how often we come to sit under the word and don't view it as a, a covenantal act to hear the preached word and, and, or for the Bible to be a covenantal document so much. Um, do you think that we've kind of lost that connection between communication of God's word and the communion that we're to have and the fellowship that we're to have in it? Uh, Amy, yes, I, I think you're certainly right that the, the Word of God sit the, sits at the centre of the covenant community um, and it constitutes that community and it's, it's how we relate to one another through that Word that is through the Word of Jesus Christ. And I think in, in our history, so emphasising the importance of the preached Word that it almost colonises the whole space in which word ministry can happen within a, within a Christian community and does all the word ministry, we have lost a New Testament emphasis, w- which not only proclaims and affirms the centrality of the preached word, but gives a vital and important function to the one another word of the community. Mm-hmm. And you see that happening right through the New Testament. I, I identified in my research 25 different passages where either by describing it or by urging or commanding it, um, the scriptures say that, the one another, the word that is the word spoken by a Christian believer to another believer, speaking somehow of the Christian faith or its implications for life, for the benefit and growth of that believer, was just a normal expected part of the community functioning of a, of a covenant community. Uh, it's, it's part of what binds us together. And I think there's something lost if we don't see the place for that one another word Right. As, an ex- as an extension of the preached word into the life of the every- yeah. everyday life of the community. Well, and even the fact that we don't, I mean, now we have, you know, each of us has at least five Bibles in our homes, right? But when yeah. we're talking about uh, New Testament time, you know, this was still very much the spoken word, you know, focused on the spoken word more. And, and everybody was considered tradents of the faith, right? I mean, we, we needed to know the word and speak it to one another. And even in the worship services, you know, you you have different things going on in the early church than we have now. Since we all have our own copy of the word of God, we have kind of internalized that more to be just between like me and God, instead of our, our responsibilities and our roles to speak God's word to one another and exhortation and encouragement and, and even gospel sharing. Yeah, absolutely. I think there isn't really a New Testament command for us to read the Bible every day, but there is actually a New Testament command for us to exhort one another every day. That's right. Hebrews 3.13. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of exhortation is, is mirrored right across the epistles. I think we should read the Bible every day. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, but the, the New Testament expectation is that as a community, we'll be constantly encouraging, exhorting, admonishing, instructing, reminding helping one another to, to live out the word uh, day by day in our interactions with one another. And at that sort of granular level of everyday experience where we have to put into practice the word that we've heard and come to know from, from, uh, from the Bible and from the preaching, mm-hmm. the role of one another in helping and encouraging and exhorting and correcting one another in, in that I think is, is vital in our everyday experience. 
So, Tony, thinking about the, the practical aspects of this, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, is not everybody is equally competent to do this. I mean, there's a reason mm. why we train men for ministry. It's so that when Absolutely. they get into the pulpit, they don't say something crazy and mislead people. Yes. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I mean, in some ways, it's the reformer's fear. When you put the Bible into the hands of everybody and you let mm. them go out there with the Bible, there's always a danger they're going to come up with crazy stuff. So how would a church uh, implement this kind of vision that you're you're laying out for us all. How does a church make sure that its people are uh, exhorting each other in the right way and not in a, a wrong way or even a crazy way, if we could put it like that? Not that any Englishman or Australian would ever do anything crazy, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, go out, like go out in the midday sun. Like go out um, in the midday sun or like, you know, so, play yeah, cricket. Yeah. <laughs> but well, seriously, yeah. what does it look like in the local church? I'm a local church pastor and I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, that sounds great. What does it look like in my local church and, and how do I go about implementing it in a competent way? Yeah, there are two issues you've raised. One is what does it look like, and secondly, how do we avoid um, the kind of the spread of uh, of heresy and the fact that different people might believe and teach different things in the congregation? Let me I'll deal with the first one first. Uh, I think it it looks like different things at different levels in the congregational life. If we think that this is something to be encouraged uh, and that should flourish within our communities because the New Testament expects it to, um, then I think it does change what happens on Sunday, for example. It would change the way a, a preacher preached in that he would assume that his word didn't finish when the sermon finished, but that his word that he taught, the Bible word that he taught, would have an echo and a life beyond his speaking into the conversations and interactions of the congregation beyond that. And he might preach in such a way as to expect and encourage that. To, to expect and encourage that this is going to be a word that, that goes beyond and that you might want to. Here's a way you can take this word this week and share it among yourselves and discuss what it means for the particular aspects of your life. Uh, at that level, I think it also does play into preaching and what preaching looks like in that sometimes, see, this is one of the things, interesting things I found in my research as I was thinking about it. If preaching tries to be too specific about how the Bible text applies to each and every person and each and every instance. That's when you descend into a kind of legalistic, over-specified form of preaching where the application is, is overly determined and overly specific. Um, whereas if there's an expectation that the general application that's applied to the whole congregation is then taken and worked out in the granular specifics of each person's life as you interact and discuss it, um, it it looks like that in, in one very significant sense. There's an expectation set up in the way the preaching happens and in what happens post the preaching that this word will reverberate among us and we'll talk about it and implement it and exhort one another on the basis of that word. Um, I think it also means on, in the Sunday meeting that we can provide, provide opportunities for the congregation to testify and to encourage um, and to pray about the ways in which they've been sharing the word with one another. So it does affect Sunday, I think. Um, but obviously it, it particularly looks like the vexed question of what happens in small groups and what small groups are for um, and small gatherings. And I think having the, a theology of the one another word, uh, anchoring it in the word of scripture and in the gospel and seeing its purpose as being to contextually apply uh, and speak about it in, in life 
gives small groups a rationale and a purpose that they often lack, I think, in churches where we just have small groups because, well, we just have them. Mm. Um, And as for the quality of that word, uh, I think that is part of the pastoral responsibility. Um, Titus was to instruct all the different sectors of of his church life in the sound doctrine of the gospel so that, for example, the older women could instruct the younger women in Calo didascalia, in good teaching, and to could pass that on to the younger women and instruct them. So the, the quality of the one another word, in one sense, stems from the quality of the teaching and training that the elders and leaders and pastors of the church provide. Could you talk a little bit more about um, the small group dynamic of that? Because I know you have a book out called uh, The Small Group and the Vine, yeah. And I'd, I'd like to hear maybe a little more detail of how you connect that purpose and, um, and then what the function of the leader is. Yeah, it seems to me that small groups as they currently function in church life tend to operate on a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, it's, it's not much more than another little mini sermon from somebody, from a, from a teacher in the group that the group hears and perhaps then interacts with. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, it's kind of like a, a care and share uh, kind of group in which you all share your problems, someone inevitably cries, and then you pray and go home. And that's the the kind of the, the two ends of the extremes. We're talking um, the same language, the, Tony. Uh, <laughs> they probably hug as well. These people who cry, they yes, probably that's right. hug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't want that. No, no, we don't no we're not Americans. We're English and Australian. Come on. <laughs> um, whereas it seems to me all that a small group really is in principle and theologically, is a cluster of disciples who are seeking to do this with one another, to, sh- to meet around the word and exhort, encourage, and help one another to understand and apply the word in their lives. And so it means that the role of the small group leader is to lead his people to the word, that the word might be open in their midst, that the leader leads his people or her people to that word, to interact around it, to soak in it, and to encourage and exhort one another through that word. And that's all a small group is really trying to do. It's just a, a little theatre or engine in which that basic function of Christian community can take place. And if we focus in on that as a purpose, it does help us to clarify how we care for other people, it seems to me. Like, mm. Care for somebody else, of course, means giving them a hug from time to time, Carl. I, I would, I've even been known to do that. But oh, Careful, careful, you know. Don't, okay. let's, not, let's not push that too far. Okay, okay, all right. Well, perhaps a, a gentle pat on the shoulder, Carl, would, would, would do. Um, but care for someone means, means speaking to them in the name of Jesus. It means relating to them through Jesus and bringing Jesus to them. And uh, that's what our small groups, if we have small groups, that's what they're therefore really and it's better not to have them at all if, if that's not what we're doing mm. I think. yeah i once remember hearing nancy guthrie speak about um you know when she was going through a lot of suffering from the loss of her baby um how hard it was to go to her bible study small group but that when she got there she was so thankful that it wasn't taken up in prayer time for nancy or let's minister to nancy even though she was going through such terrible suffering yeah that it was actually, you know, continuing to, to go through the book that they were go- studying through in the Bible and how that, you know, it was the word of God. It's spoken through, you know, the communion of the saints that hmm. really ministered to her. That's what I'm thinking about while you're saying that. Yeah, it's, and it's so much more powerful as a way of actually encouraging and supporting one another that we, 
bring the word to the crises and problems we have and we pray through the word and in the word for those things as opposed to uh, thinking that we do our Bible time over here and now we share over there and those are two separate occasions. Yeah. Well, I'm really interested in this book, The Small Group in the Vine. I'm going to pick that up for myself. I'm, I'm really intrigued after our talk today. And, and so thanks, Tony, for coming on and talking to us about this. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and our listeners, if you go over to our website at mortificationofspin.org, Matthias Media is giving away a few copies to some of you who can register to win. So I highly encourage you to do that. And I also want to thank um, our listeners, those of you who have gone over on our website and clicked the button to leave a donation. We really appreciate you helping to support our ministry here. And we thank you that uh, we can keep the underground bunker going and to keep these conversations going and these interviews with great people like Tony Payne. And I should add that um, you, you co-author that book with Marty Sweeney, correct? Correct. Yeah. He runs Matthias Media here in the US. Um, and so he did the translation for me. So it, it, it works in America and it works in Australia and it, it works all over the place. <laughs> great. And, and that's a five-week course, right? Yeah, right. So the idea is you have small group leaders in your church, some who are brand new um, and some who might be have been around for a while. Uh, what really is your role? What is this thing and what is your role in leading it? And we lay out in the kind of way I've been talking about how your role is, is, to, is to be responsible for bringing your group to the word and leading them into it and being a, a disciple with them and encouraging one another in the word and praying for each other. So it's, it's simple and basic, but our goal was not only to provide a good foundation for new leaders, but maybe a refresher for experienced leaders, many of whom perhaps haven't, haven't ever really properly been trained in these things. So. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And, and we're excited to be giving away a bundle. That's, one, that's wonderful. Thank you. It really is. And we're excited about that. And so thank you for listening. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Traveling in a Friday combi On a hippie trailhead full of zombies I met a strange lady, she made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said, do you come from a land down under? Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think there's somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of a trillion and a half um, hotels in the Washington, D.C. area. And I book the one that's hosting the Big Furries convention. It's come. Uh, for that, it's for come. that weekend. That interview is next time. Join us then. wife gave me permission to smoke in the house about 20 years ago mm -hmm. he said you know i'm going to be gone just you know go ahead and enjoy <laughs> it and i'm sure it's all going to dissipate by the time you came back well you know first of all she doesn't know how much i could smoke and what i smoke <laughs> uh, by the way I don't, I don't go for any of this wimpy pipe stuff i, I like about a 12 inch you know about an inch wide type of a cuban or something uh, kind of close to that
Yep. Yep. And, and after about three days of that, it took about two months for it to yeah. disappear. Yeah. <laughs> permission kind of went away at that. Yeah. yeah. You know. My wife prefers that I not smoke uh, cigars indoors, and so I. Yeah. I, I I will I will do that out on the the, the the porch. Well, see if Mrs. Spurgeon had done that to Charles, <laughs> history would have never been the same. You know, the, the one of the main contributors to modern reform life would have been eliminated. He, he would have wallowed in his depression and probably never written a dang thing. Exactly. He was very clear. He attributed <laughs> um, a, a relief from depression to uh, to cigars and to a yeah. glass of port at night before he went to bed. That those were highly medicinal for him. Right. Well, C.S. Lewis's famous statement, which I still hold to, I, I don't go to Christianity to get me happy. You know, a, a glass of port will do that. 